Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. We have been looking forward to this for quite some time. We didn't know when we would be able to come and visit, but we knew when the opportunity would arise that we would seize it and enjoy being with you this morning, and we are looking forward to the Bible Bowl this afternoon to spend some more time together. As mentioned, uh, I was told by Mark Teske and Don Blackwell, if I did not talk about GBN for just a moment, that they would be uh, upset with me. And so GBN is still thriving. It's doing a very good job, as you know. Uh, The GBN Live program that they have every Thursday night is having great success. And I was privileged to work for the Gospel Broadcasting Network for two years. And while I was there, I was the head of youth programming. And I was in charge of trying to help get teen programming back on the map at GBN. For those of you that have watched GBN, mostly it's older men in suits preaching. There's nothing wrong with that. But we had nothing for the teens, and so we created 15 programs in two years dedicated to the teens. I was privileged to host a good portion of those and be on them with other people. Very good programs, and just a few of them for those that are here that want to watch. I believe every day at 4 o'clock, let's see, that would be Central Time, uh, Conversations with Chris. Many of you all might know Chris Clevenger. He's a good gospel preacher, a good friend of mine. He and I, we sit down together And we discuss difficult questions that teenagers are facing on a regular basis. What do I do when my friend comes and tells me that they're pregnant? What do I do when my mother and father are getting a divorce? Difficult questions that sadly we have to face today. And Chris is a very good preacher. He handles these questions very well. And in fact, I'm privileged to just be the one to ask the questions and then just make some comments based on what he said. I have the easy job. I get to throw him soft uh, curveballs and whatnot and then just sit back and watch. And so that's a good program I know the teens would benefit from. And then, of course, every Saturday there's a program called Text Message. I was privileged to host that for 50 episodes, but when I knew that I was leaving to go to school, I knew I would not be able to host programs like I love to do because school takes a lot of time. And so Chris Clevenger is now the host of that, very good host of that program. And uh, that comes on every morning at 9 to 9.30 in the morning. And I know the teens would benefit from that. And even the younger people would benefit from it as well. And so GBN is doing well. And they say hello. And they appreciate your support. Just as Megan and I appreciate your support and continual prayers. And as you might have known, I've been having some health problems over the last few months. Um, I've been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And we've been trying to get into a research study I got the call last Tuesday that I've been approved, and next Wednesday I go to start taking a drug called Intivio, and it is supposed to make me symptom-free, and if all goes well, a lot of the people that are taking this medicine have gone into remission, and so we're praying for that, and we covet your prayers for that as well. It was over 10 years ago now that the Pittsburgh Steelers, my favorite team, born and raised, were in a bind. They were 7-5 and five with just four games left in the regular season, and they were not looking good to make the playoffs. Coach called a meeting and said, look, we have one-game seasons from now on. We're no longer looking at the season. With four games left, it's one game left, because if we lose, we're eliminated. And that team managed to win the last four games, but still the impossible had to be done because no sixth seed had ever won a Super Bowl. It had never been done. In fact, no sixth seed had ever played in a Super Bowl. They'd always been eliminated. They'd always lost because they're the sixth seed. They've got to go on the road the entire time. 
of the playoffs. They never get a home game, constant road travel, and in fact, it could be traveling thousands of miles between weeks to get to the stadium that they have to play the next Sunday. And yet somehow, some way, they managed to rise above and they won Super Bowl Forty. Now that made me happy, of course, being a Steelers fan, but I began to think about that and how the analysts were saying before the game, it's not possible. It can't be done. It's never been done. It can't be done. And I began to think of some other things that we were told were not possible. Neil Armstrong, you can't walk on the moon. Jackie Robinson, you can't play in baseball. You can't be a Dodger. You're black. It's not allowed. It's just not been done before. And then I began to think about things that seem impossible and how many times you watch the Olympics every four years and you watch as people rise above and do what is seemingly impossible and they shock and awe with the records that they break. They just amaze people. Or you've seen the, the video of the man who was running the race in the Olympics and he fell down and busted his ankle and his father ran out and helped him finish because it was important to finish. Seemed like it wouldn't happen, yet it did, because somebody stood up and said, I'm going to make it possible for you to do this. That's what seems impossible. And while it's great, and I love watching sports movies and sports stories and watching teams rise up and beat teams that they're not expected to win, nothing compares to what is absolutely impossible without God. Nothing. Yes, Alabama lost to Ole Miss this year. Wow. Well, I think Ole Miss lost last night. And nothing can compare to what God has made possible through His Word, through the countless times that it seemed like everything was falling down around the individuals, and God said, hold on, I've got your back. And so this morning, I want to look at just a few key areas. I want to look at two from the Bible and then one from everyday life of how God can make things possible when it seems like it's so impossible. First, I'd like to go to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, and if you have your Bibles, please go there with me because this is just one of my most favorite Bible history accounts. As Gideon has over 32,000 men at his disposal, they're ready to go to war and everything looks okay. Until the Lord says in verse 2, Gideon, the, the people that are with you, too many. You have too many people. In fact, I'm worried that if I give the Midianites into their hands, Israel will vaunt themselves against me and say, my own hand has saved me. Haven't you seen that before in sports? Player scores a touchdown, scores the game-winning basket, and they begin to pound upon their chest and stomp off the field, off the court. But then sometimes you might even see somebody that they point up. And they may not be a Christian, but they still understand something. I didn't do that on my own account. God blessed me with physical abilities to be able to play this game, and I need to give credit where credit is due. And God is saying, I'm not thinking that the Israelites will say, thank you, Lord. They're going to say, look how bad we are. We're wonderful. We don't need God. And someone might say, well, that's kind of far-fetched. Uh, no. Read the first five books of the Bible and see how many times they acted like they were better than the Lord when they said, it would be better that we were back in Egypt. It would be better that we were back as slaves. Really. It would be better that you were slaves with people beating you constantly, forcing you to do manual labor. Anybody here want to be a slave today? I don't. It would be better that we were back in Egypt. You talk about slapping God in the face. 
all that he had done to get them to the point that they were at, and they would constantly complain. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. And yet every time God provides. But oh, how quick they were to forget about that. And so I think God has every right to believe that the Israelites will say, we're bad. We don't need the Lord. And so he says, you know what you need to do, Gideon? You need to tell everyone that is fearful and afraid, go home. We don't need them. And I would be shocked if I were Gideon and I were to say, everybody that is fearful and afraid, go home. And 22,000 men began to leave. Remember, we had 32,000 to start off and now all of a sudden we have 10,000. I would be sitting here thinking, okay, 10,000. Well, we can 10,000 is still a good amount. Uh, Gideon, the people that are with you are, are still too many. Now, this is something that I've always struggled with, and I think every one of us could agree. Wouldn't you be sitting there thinking, come on, you want more people to go home? You, we had 32,000 men, now we have 10,000, and you're telling me more need to go home? Okay. But Gideon says, what do I need to do? And he says, here's what needs to do. Here's what needs to be done. Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. Now what this means is there are those that were literally shoving their heads into the water, drinking like a dog, not surveying their surroundings, not looking around. But then there were some that they would put their hand into the water and they'd bring it up to drink. I've heard a commentator say that what this means is it's quite possible that those that were putting their hands in were looking around for the enemy because they understood that sneak attacks occur in war and they were surveying their surroundings for the upcoming attack that could occur. And God says, the 300 men that lapped, I'll save you by them. Notice this though. Who's going to save them? I will save you. Gideon, you need to understand something right now and the 300 that are with you, you have nothing to do with what is about to happen. It's not on you. It's on me. I'm going to save you. And in fact, I have whittled down your army to 300 men and you're going up against thousands. Good luck by yourself. But with me, with me on your side, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be worried because I've got your back. I've got it. It's okay. And sure enough, you read through the rest of the chapter, we don't have time this morning, but if you read through the rest of the chapter all the way to verse 24, guess what? They're victorious because God was victorious. Well, surely that's just one account. There's, there's no other time where God made things possible, right? I mean, that's just such a... I mean, that's just so crazy. There's nothing like that ever happened again. Oh, ye of little faith. Go to Second Kings chapter 6. Appreciate the young man who read that passage for us. This, this passage in 2 Kings 6 has always blown my mind because I'll be honest with you, I'm not a father yet, but I hope to be someday. I cannot imagine going to the grocery store and finding no food, looking up and down the aisles and just, there's absolutely no food, and going home and telling my wife, let's eat our children. I can't imagine doing that. This famine has gotten so bad that women are eating their own children. Mamas, I really don't think any of you would raise your hand if I did ask. 
But isn't it sad that if you were to ask, Mamas, would any of you eat your own children? I, I would really be shocked. And I think we'd have to have some counseling sessions if people were raising their hands. And yet, you read Second Kings chapter 6, and this woman comes to the king and says, I need help. And he says, well, what aileth thee? And she says, this woman over here said, give us your son that we may eat him today, and then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. But you know what this woman did, though? When it came time for her son to die, she hid him, the audacity. How dare she? And this king hears this and he rents his clothes, understandably so. And you come upon chapter 7, and Elisha says, this time tomorrow, verse 1, food is going to be sold for half the price. Notice verse 2. Then a lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Hold on a minute. When God needed to feed the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 16, did he not give them quail and manna from heaven? And so I think if God does this once before, it could be done again. But one thing I've always found interesting, and and bear with me as I make this illustration because it sounds... You know, it doesn't sound right at first, but just hear me out. Have you ever gone to a magic show? And you've watched as the magician does multiple different... Does he do the same trick every time? No. Why? Because that would be boring after a while, and it would just show, hey, you can only do one thing. In fact, there's always at the end this huge trick that everybody leaves and just goes, how did he do that? That car was not there a minute ago, and now it's there, and there's a tiger in it, and there's also two humans. I don't know how he did it. You see, God could do it the same way every time. But to show his almighty power, he says this time, I'm going to do it in a different way. Food's going to be sold half the price. Do you believe me? Elisha's a prophet. He's from the Lord, and yet this Lord says, if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, might this thing be... Oh, it could be. And Elisha even says to him, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, shalt not eat thereof. You won't get a bite. And then we come upon four leprous men. And they say to each other, Why are we sitting here until we die? You know, lepers were considered unclean. They had to inform other people of what they were. And they weren't to be in the city. They were outside of the city sitting at the gate. And they said, You know, if we sit here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, there's a famine in the land. We're going to die there. Let's rise up, go to the Syrians, and just see what happens. Look, if they kill us, we're dying anyway. But if they save us and we become prisoners of war, so to speak, they're going to feed us. They'll take care of us to some extent, better than we're being taken care of right now. And so they arose at twilight. They got up to go to the camp of the Syrians, and I really do believe they might have had their hands up of surrender of some kind, an indication they meant no harm. And they look around, and no one's there. I can't imagine walking into a camp thinking that your life is in danger, and then looking to your friends and saying, Do you see anybody? Do you see anybody? I don't see anybody. Why? Where did they go? Don't you understand? They have crippled with this famine the people that they want to get control of. They've crippled them. So why would they just up and leave all of a sudden? It would be like a boxer 
who has the man on the ropes, and then he just puts his arms down and says, come at me. And allows the other boxer to defeat him. What? Why? Why would this happen? This is not natural. Read with me in verse 6. For the Lord. The Lord had made the host of the Syrians to see an army coming? No. To hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. Don't tell God something's impossible. Notice, it's not that these armies were coming, it's that they sounded like they were coming. They weren't. God made a noise to appear into their ears, and they believed that they were in big trouble. And so it says in verse 7, They arose and fled in the twilight, left their tents, and their camp as it was fled for their life. They didn't have to, but they thought they did. Because the Lord had made them hear a noise that said, You've got some trouble coming. And so these leprous men, they go into the camp and they notice there's food. There's spoils, there's riches. And they begin to hoard it and keep it for themselves. And they realize in verse 9, we're not doing well. If we don't tell someone, there will be some mischief that will come upon us. And so they go back to the king and they tell him what happened. And you know what? The king says, I know what the Syrians have done. You, you are so naive. They know that we're hungry. They know that we're on the brink of death and they know we're desperate and they're waiting in the trees for us to go to the camp. And the moment we go out and do that, they're going to attack and either take the city one or take us. Now, I don't know the name of the servant in verse 13 that said this, but aren't you thankful for the power of one? The power of one person willing to step up and say what's right? This one servant answered and said... Could we not take five horses, just five, and send some people to see if this is so? Just like the one maid who said, if only Naaman knew of the prophet. The power of one can be a powerful thing. And the king says, okay, go and see. And sure enough, Syrians are nowhere to be found. The camp is intact. And the food is being sold for half the price. And that Lord who said it was impossible was trampled to death at the gate. Don't tell God it is impossible. Don't tell Him. You won't like your findings, I promise you. But then I began to think of the countless other examples in the Bible. And we could go on and on, but for time's sake we don't have the ability to do that. And so I started thinking, well, with God's Word, what, what, possible, what things have become possible that without God's Word would not be possible? And I started to think about how God has made things possible for you and for me to go to heaven. As was mentioned when we partook of the Lord's Supper, we were given a hope of eternal life because of the Word of God. The Bible tells us that all scriptures given by the inspiration of God, that the man of God, verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, might be perfect. That is having the complete word that he needs to get to heaven. And you might have heard some of these illustrations before, but bear with me please because there might be someone here this morning that's not heard these and they definitely deserve repeating. 
Young people can make a difference. As I mentioned, being the host of Text Message and the head of youth programming, it was a privilege to get to work with young people and to have young people film programs. And I watched as young people made a difference, and I've also seen it at times. Some of you may know the name Tate Williams. He lived in the Georgia area, went to foundations every year at Memphis, and passed away on his way to his first gospel meeting at 19 years old. First gospel meeting, and he passed away because of a car accident. He was on his way to Memphis, and in fact, the congregation he attended had already sent a chunk of his support to Memphis. It was waiting for him, and Memphis sent it back because they knew that it was not appropriate to keep it, of course. But this young man was ready, and yet he was cut down short in life. But he made a difference. He being dead, yet speaketh. He still makes a difference today. But I began to think about young people who were instrumental in conversions. I remember W.A. Bradfield would tell an illustration of a gospel meeting conducted in Mississippi and many years ago in which one little freckled-faced girl was baptized. Just one. And some of the members said the meeting was a failure. We just had one convert. The meeting was a failure. Only one response. That one little girl grew up, married a Christian... They had five sons and three daughters, and guess what all five sons grew up to be? Gospel preachers. Yeah, that meeting was a failure. (laughs) Oh, no. Any time one of those five men stood in a pulpit and watched as someone came down, pricked by the gospel, and baptized them into Christ, that meeting was still being effective. Or another time where a little girl invited her friend to come to church with her. Teenage girls, they invited each other, and she goes to the gospel meeting. She hears the gospel. It pricks her heart as it can do. She becomes a Christian. Later, she meets a man, helps him become a Christian. They moved to Maryland with his parents, converted his parents, and then they started a church of Christ in Maryland that is still thriving. And you may have heard the next story, but bear with me, please, because it is just, it's powerful. There's a boy named Joe, was not raised in the church. He grew up not knowing God. He'd go to vacation Bible school in Bible bowls like we had, and we're having this afternoon. But really, he wasn't raised in the church. In high school, he would isolate himself constantly because he didn't want to be around other people. And when the time came, one of the high school basketball stars got on his nerves and he punched him out. And rather than facing the expulsion that was waiting for him, he left for Denver, Colorado. It took six weeks before he realized, nobody here cares if I live or die. So he went back, was expelled, And then he joined the Air Force. And upon joining the Air Force, he was so close to getting a certain high degree when he was court-martialed and lost all his stripes. Because he was going AWOL constantly, breaking into houses, stealing things. He called his wife and said, we need to run away because I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for this. And she said, no, You're going to take your punishment. He was court-martialed, sentenced to go to Okinawa, a very small island. 
They found out that his wife was pregnant, but not far enough along for him to be allowed to stay. He will miss the birth of his first child. He gets to Okinawa and begins to beat up every roommate that he's been given. He gambles away his paycheck constantly, goes into a drunken stupor on a daily basis. He's calling his wife, I need more money because I've gambled away my paycheck. He had the key to the weapons locker and on more than one occasion he thought about ending it all. He would bought some black sake on one occasion, poorly manufactured drink stumbling already because he was in a drunken stupor, fell in the glass bottle, broke onto the concrete steps, which he sat down on the steps, picked up the pieces of glass, and slurped the alcohol that was in it. This is a man that does not care what happens to him. How many times have you and I seen an individual like this and we've said, he can't be saved? Move on. Lost cause. 17-year-old boy named Crockett put in his room. Next roommate assigned. He sizes up Joe up and down, observes him for a few days. Joe constantly complains about this and that. And one one of the days, Crockett just said, you know, if I were you, I'd start reading my Bible. What a simple sentence. Joe laughed it off. Oh, yeah, read my Bible, of course. Yeah, that has all the answers, huh? But he went to the base exchange and bought a Bible. Began to read it and naturally had questions. Remember, he was not raised in the church. 17-year-old boy Crockett knew a lot for his age, but not as much as he'd like. And so he got to a point where he told Joe, why don't you come to church with me? Because I don't have all the answers that you're looking for, but there are men at church who do Preachers and whatnot, elders and whatnot, they can help you understand this book better than I can right now. He was going to church with Joe. Crockett helped him find an elder that took him under the wing, and Joe was baptized into Christ. What a wonderful thing. He went back home and fell away. His son that had been born while he was away cries when he holds him because he doesn't know this man. Joe begins to drink again and do things that he had done in Okinawa. Became a milkman and one day he was traveling on his milk route and he took a wrong turn and he pulled right into a building that said, join, or excuse me, worship this Sunday at the Church of Christ. And he read that sign and he remembered what it was like to be a Christian, to serve the Lord, to worship Him on a regular basis, and that Sunday morning he brought his children with him for Bible class and morning worship. Mama's not going to go yet. She's a Roman Catholic. She doesn't want to have anything to do with the Church of Christ. He brings his two sons and his daughter on a regular basis, and they would go home and tell Mama what they learned. And she began to think, I've never heard that before, and so she got a Bible began to read it, and started noticing all of the things that Catholicism has taught me. It's not in here. They're not found in Scripture. And so she was baptized into Christ after obeying the gospel. And they could not find Joe anywhere. He had slipped off into a classroom. He was crying tears of joy. My family is one with Christ. My family is one with Christ. 
he began to get is what some preachers called the itch to preach. And they allowed him on Wednesday nights to do the devotional. And on every other Sunday, he might get up in the evening and give a lesson. And they came up to him, some of them, and said, you know, you've, you've kind of got a knack for this. And there's a school at Memphis that teaches preachers and trains them. They sold all their furniture and moved to Memphis. And after the two-year program was completed, he was voted the most outstanding student in his graduating class. And as he's walking across the stage to receive this award, he remembers the black sake and just how far he's come from his sin-sick days. He begins to preach in several different states and begins to continue to raise children in a godly fashion. His oldest son goes to Fried Hardeman, wants to become a preacher, meets his wife. They have three children. His youngest son wants to become a preacher. He goes to the Memphis School of Preaching. Got married as well before he went. Got in the car yesterday and drove to McMinnville, Tennessee come to the Bible Branch Church of Christ this morning and visit his supporters and preach for them. Joe's my grandfather, T.J. Clark, Ted Joseph Clark. I'm Michael Joseph Clark, named after my grandfather and my father, but also after Joe Crockett, who helped convert my grandfather. And I would love to tell you that the story ends so happy for Joe and for Joe Crockett, but I, I can't because Joe Crockett was honorably discharged. He went home, was engaged to be married, was six weeks away from his wedding. It was raining out. His fiance said, be careful, I will. He got into the car and misjudged a turn and slammed into a tree. He didn't die but he was deemed a quadriplegic, paralyzed in all four limbs for the rest of his life. His fiancée said, I want to get married still, and he said, I will not do that to you. I cannot give you children. I cannot work for this family the way that a man should provide. I love you enough to let you free to be able to find a man that can do all of those things for you. And she came back multiple different times to the hospital to visit him. And eventually she brought a man with her to meet Joe. And I've often wondered how painful that must have been to have to look at the woman that you love with another man, knowing that you never got a chance to be with her because of what happened. And yet Joe did not give up as a Christian. He did not stop evangelizing. My brother, Daniel Crockett Hall Clark, was named after him. And in 2005, where I started, is where I'll end. The most important thing happened in Joe's life, and it was not that the Pittsburgh Steelers won the Super Bowl. Joe slipped into a coma. He woke up and was lucid for 18 hours. And during those 18 hours, every time someone walked by the hospital room, hey, come in here real quick. In that cabinet up there, there's a sermon. Reach in there, grab it, go listen to it, come back, tell me what you think about it. Hey, in this drawer right here, there are some tracts. 
about the church of Christ and about becoming a Christian, I would really appreciate it if you would take one, read it, and then come back and talk to me about it. Hey, there's a church building not too far from here. I would love it if you'd attend there this Sunday and tell me what you think about it when you come back. This man spent the last 18 hours of his life serving the Lord because he truly believed in the power of the gospel and that with God all things are possible. He passed away. I never had the privilege of meeting him. But Megan and I have already decided, whether by adoption or whether by our own means of having children, we will name one of our children after him. I cannot help but name a child after the man that has given me so much hope by teaching my grandfather the gospel. I owe everything to Jesus and to Joe. Because without Christ, I have no hope of eternal life, and without Joe, I have no knowledge of it. I don't know what would have become of my father if he had not learned the truth. Can someone here today make that type of difference? We've been given the means. God said, I'm going to make it possible for you to go to heaven, for you to find the truth. There will be no excuses. Next time, you and I, as I've done, and I'm ashamed of doing, but I know all of us have done it at some point, the next time you and I look at an individual and say, they're too sin sick, they can't make it, they're not able to become a Christian, it's just not possible. They don't want what we have to offer. Stop for a second and remember that you were once sin sick as well, that you once had problems, that Jesus was able to take care of with his blood, and you are being a hoarder of the gospel if you will not help other people have the same happiness that you have. The blessed gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. It's not a clique. It's not a club that you have to be fitting into in order to be able to be in it. No, God says, I want everyone. Come. And this morning, if you're not a member of that body, it would be very easy for you to become one. God made His plan so much more simple. So that today we don't have to worry about an animal sacrifice in order to atone for our sins. Once for all, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, when it was done, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We've had what? One sacrifice for all. It covers everybody that will be baptized, 1 Peter three twenty one into the remission of sins. And you can become a Christian and start serving the Lord by hearing His Word, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of the sins that you have in your life, confessing that Jesus is who He said He was and did what He said He would do, and then being baptized, fully immersed for the remission of your sins. Any time you and I help somebody obey the gospel, no matter how few or how many, you never know the impact that it might make. I pray that someday I'm privileged to be at a congregation and I'm telling the story of Joe, and someone comes up to me and says, I was one of the ones that he gave a track to. I was one of the ones that he gave a CD to. I was sin sick, and that CD helped me find the truth. No, it's possible because of the impact that he had and the impact that the gospel can have, most importantly. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you have fallen away, you have not done the things that the Lord would want you to do, maybe you've doubted that God will make things possible, Trust in Him. 
rededicate your life to him, whatever need you have, and come right now as together we stand and sing.